1: Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast, and I'm here with Taylor Foxman. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat.
1: Taylor is the founder and CEO of Industry Collective. She has spent the past 11 years of her professional career serving various communications and PR roles for 70 global wine, beer, and spirit brands. In addition to her role within the collective, she is also in the New York board for Step Up, a nonprofit organization with the mission of helping young women from under-resourced communities fulfill their potential. She also co-hosts two industry podcasts, and she was recently awarded 40 under 40 for industry and brand Innovator of the Year's 40 Under 40. So with that, this is going to be a winding conversation based on your background and, and what you're up to today. But let's start with how you got into the marketing, PR, beverage space to begin with.
0: Yeah. So I started in marketing, comms, and PR, and we'll get into it. And over the years, I've gone up around. And so now I do kind of a, they call me a jack of all trades. Yeah. So my involvement in beverage kind of stems back to pretty much literally pre 21. I was in college. I went to school at Boston university and got the opportunity to intern for Svedka vodka when I was like 19 or 20, when I was majoring in communications. And I didn't even really understand that that could be a job at the time. I was like, what am I, what am I doing here? And if anyone recalls, there was this campaign at that time where there was like a fembot, and it was this woman who was like, "Svedka is going to be the vodka twenty twenty three, whatever." And now we are actually in that year, and I don't think Svedka is on top of those to the top vodkas. They, they,
1: they used uh, to have really cool magazine ads. I remember that.
0: That's that's when I that was I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm, exactly right. I'm,
1: da- I'm dating myself as a millennial, but those were like the cool things right? to have that was, up in was your a cool door thing. Yeah,
0: totally. yeah, so. So so that's when I was involved. I just worked as an intern. I mean, nothing crazy. And then got into University of Southern California after school to get a master's in communication because I thought I wanted to go more of like the academia route, maybe teach comms, and then got an opportunity to start working on Jamison Irish Whiskey when I was 21. And that's under Preneur Ricard, which is the set, one of the largest global wine sphere companies in the world da- behind Diageo and worked across like their entire whiskey line and travel the country and then we could I'll stop there in a minute, but like that was the beginning. So from 21 to 25, I worked across that across their entire portfolio primarily on communications marketing PR. and then we could get into it further. but I've spent now 13 years here in New York, still in beverage, have evolved and expanded kind of my efforts, but it really started at like 19 or 20 and and have really realized that at first I was like, wow, this is a really niche thing to hone in on. You know, like you work in beverage, but then honestly, this is such like a booming category 13 years later that like I barely can keep up with the sheer amount of brands that are here. So yeah, I'm happy to explain what happened kind of from 21 to now, but that is the beginning of how I got into beverage.
1: Yeah. And through this context of you, as I would say, I don't know, like a consultant, right? A third party advisor to these brands. I'd love to get out of the kind of granular brass tacks and talk more industry, you know, strategy and what you're seeing in terms of what's happening within the space largely or more high level. So obviously during COVID, um, alcohol consumption went up dramatically, right? And it seemed like there was a proliferation even before that of new brands of, Startups in the space, which had kind of come after a large consolidation effort of some of these multinationals. Where are we today in terms of are you, Are you seeing new brands coming to market? Are you seeing more consolidation of the eight hundred pound gorillas? What's the state of play?
0: I would say like simultaneously, both are happening. You you've never seen more corporate M and A in terms of wine and spirits. I mean. I have worked for some of the biggest conglomerates in the world, and I worked for Boston Beer. I worked for Edrington, which has Macallan. I worked for Patron and Jaeger and Stoley and all of these brands. And even when I was working on the brands until a few years ago in-house, there was M&A happening, right? Like you have the big gorillas, like you said, who, who weren't buying brands or partnering with brands, but uh, nowhere near the, the kind of the frequency, right, as they are now. And so I would say that when it comes to brands coming to market, there are literally brands popping up day by day on the independent kind of startup emerging side. And that's primarily, you know, it started, I would say, kind of more obviously around COVID when people started doing side hustles or they quit their day jobs and they all wanted to become moonshiners, you know, and then at the same time. There have been various, you know, barriers to entry pre-existing in the beverage space as to how brands could come to market. I won't go down a whole diatribe, but there is this whole three-tier system in alcohol where I can't sell you product. Like I'm Mary's moonshine, I have to sell it to Bob, who then bobs it, then sells it to you. Anyone can read through the lines, it's very archaic, very dusty. There have been platforms and companies that have evol- have come out over the past few years like Speakeasy Co. is one, Thirsty is another. There's a few platforms that now enable brands to sell direct to consumer technically, right? So now they're like, okay, well, I can sell the product to people. So let's take that issue away. And then you have technologies that where you could virtually call companies at this point, quite frankly, and ask them, I'd love to create a vodka and they'll create it for you from start to finish and then you have companies that will help you market it and develop it so just to paint a much more macro picture i think there are immensely more resources out there for people to create brands from ground you know the ground up and you know like a lot of this stuff is not waiting 15 20 years for whiskey anymore though there'll always be a market for that there's fake spirits there's things that don't need to be aged there's things that people create in labs and so there's just a lot of activity happening on the startup side with new brands coming to market. And on the big brand side, I think there is this, there is this I think they're a little bit scared. I wouldn't say necessarily that a behemoth like a Boston Beer or a Campari, everywhere that I came from, I don't think they're like waking up in the middle of the night worried about, you know, a company from La Jolla, you know, creating a product. I think there is this seismic shift, though, that is happening where everything used to be driven by big brands in my space, and it's not really the case anymore. I think there are so many companies out there that are innovating, but really, really innovating, not just saying we are innovative, and that's just kind of like, you know, goes without saying. It's like they're doing things that can't be done quickly by big companies due to just how these companies work. So even if it's not the best version of what it could be in terms of innovation and stuff like that, these smaller brands can get it done quicker or collaborations or limited time drops and stuff like that. So I think that they are looking at ways to buy, partner, and acquire with some of these companies that are earlier to market to be part of these conversations, to be relevant, and to leverage what these companies are able to do much quicker than they can do.
1: So it's interesting when I was preparing for this conversation or just thinking about it over the weekend, I went to a family office conference in Louisville. I guess it was the fall. And it seemed like every private equity group and every family, and even the Brown Form Foreman family to some extent, was out there in the kind of bourbon space doing small batch or starting up a distillery or having an experiential tasting retail location on the bourbon trail somewhere or in Louisville. To what extent is there market saturation happening here? I mean, the consumer has had a lot of appetite, obviously, but at some point, there's just too many brands to choose from. Is that is that just part of the cycle that these spirits go through from time to time?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. Look, I think at the end of the day, it. it I am now in like the venture capital space. I wouldn't say I'm a venture capitalist, but. I do believe now that I've, my business started through a venture capital firm, which I can tell you about at some point during our conversation, I was involved in, you know, some of the M&A stuff going on within Pernod Ricard, which I mentioned I worked for prior. I do think that we are at that kind of inflection point where there's just, there has to be like, you know, the bubble will burst eventually. People will still create brands, but I think that there will be this, I don't mean to be crude, but like trimming of the fat a little bit here a lot of these companies that start out that aren't self-funded that don't have you know capital don't have strategic people in their backyard to help them you know move them forward whether it's people like me who's an advisor for 45 of these beverage companies or it's literally like venture capitalists or investors or angel angel investors or mentors without those types of people without capital without usually the knowledge of the industry which most of these people do not have And, you know, a lot of these brands will fall to the wayside and they they just get, you know, and we're in this time where the ability to get distributed, the ability to get capital is, I say, first and foremost, to everyone that reaches out to me or is recommended to me, like it's not a given. And it's one of those things where you really have to think and be so intentional with everything that you do every email you write to an investor every pitch deck you send to a potential distributor or retail partner everything has to be buttoned up and spot on because you are just in a market now and i'm it's not just the beverage cpg food and beverage space i mean it's many industries right but for beverage companies in particular if you think about it it's the most exciting time to be a consumer Like you and I could hang out tonight, and I could have a fake beer, and you could have a genetically modified whiskey that was created in a lab and is developed in five months versus five years. And then maybe someone sits next to us and has a cannabis beverage and then sparkling water. Like, if anything, over the past two to three years since COVID has happened, everything has changed. And like, there is no stigma around not drinking. Everyone can drink whatever the hell they want, whenever they want, which has created even more saturation and confusion and overlap. So I believe that we are, you're right. I believe we're at a point where the market is super saturated. Do we need one more tequila soda on the market? No. Do we need another adaptogenic water brand? Probably not. So I think it's really going to come down to Which of these brands across, let's just stay in my lane in beverage, end up getting the right counsel, the right capital, the right distribution, the right team on board, they have the right ability, they have the ability to scale in a way that's strategic and not too fast. I think those are going to be the ones that end up lasting at least the next five years. We'll see.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think ultimately this is good for the consumer, right? Driving down... Pricing, giving more optionality on the menu. You touched on something that I do want to expand on. There is this sober, curious, dry January. I'm taking a break from drinking for a period of time. And it's interesting, I'm 40 and amongst my peers, there's a lot of questions, but I work with a lot of younger people. And to them, they just don't care. Like it's not a big deal. They just, you just say, Hey, yeah, I'm like taking a break. And then you, they move on to the conversation. Are you seeing more and more brands experimenting the non-alcoholic side? And where do you see that part of the industry going in the future?
0: Yeah, so I have I have a lot to say about that. My mom, unfortunately, like at the beginning of COVID, got sick with cancer and She's okay now, but like it kind of struck a chord with me where I was just like, you know, is there anything that I could maybe proactively just change in my life? And it was mainly just kind of like a research project originally because I don't even go out on the weekends. I don't know if I've stayed out past midnight ever, but my whole career has been in spirit. So everything's at a distillery, a vineyard, you know, stuff like that. So I started talking about my interest in the space. On the podcast that I host every week, and I, you know, contribute for Rolling Stone, I started just talking about this stuff, and it was an overwhelming amount of brand founders and partners that are in the sound space that have been so welcoming, reached out immediately, and have really taken me in, and I, I, I'm very much ingrained in that community at this point. I think that again, kind of going back to that big shift, this is a huge change. I don't, I can't recall, I'm 34, so I don't know, maybe there was a moment in time prior to when I was able to drink that it was okay. But like the the ability for people to just say, I'm just going to have a water or I just want a soda or I don't want to drink or it just, it, it was, it was kind of generally frowned upon. It was like, well, what's the issue or do you have a problem or what's going on? And I think a lot of it is a younger demographic of people to your point that just said, like, I like, who cares? And I don't want to drink and I shouldn't have to rationalize it. And which opened up, quite frankly, Pandora's box for so many other demographics of people, you know, to be like, well, we don't drink either. And then when you do, you look into the numbers of just, just how many people abstain from drinking or don't really drink that often, it's quite substantial. So I think when you said optionality, it's funny because everything that I say around the non-alcoholic space is about optionality. I see absolutely no downside to the entire category. I'm a board member for a few of these brands that are in the non alcoholic space, like Mondays, which is a portfolio of like non-alcoholic spirits. I run corporate development for a company called Better Roads, which is like a marketplace online for kind of the wider non-alcoholic beverage community and product portfolio. So, and, and do a lot of stuff in the space. So, I think what is the downside to it? There's more competition for traditional beverage brands and even traditional beverages. So, alcoholic and then traditional beverages, yes. By these products being out there and by people being more vocal, there is more of a market saturation than even we were talking about before within just the beverage alcohol space. But everyone's aware. I mean, it is very, very clear that there is not a lot of positive benefits to drinking alcohol. I don't think anyone can refute that, right? So my mentality about it is being more mindful. I'm not an all or nothing person. I've never been like that. But if that works for someone and they do dry January, I know a lot of people that have moved on to dry February. That's wonderful. I'm involved in the space and I, I like the fact that companies are investing in it. You've seen non-alcoholic, you know, spin-offs from big, you know, beverage companies are creating their own non-alcoholic products. Keurig Dr. Pepper invested millions of dollars recently into Athletic Brewing, which is the leading non-alcoholic beer company, stuff like that, right? And so you're seeing the big players take it more seriously way quicker, I believe, than I had expected and a lot of the experts in the space had expected. And then you have brands that are, are leading the charge that are independent. And what I would love to see more and more of is the opportunity to get on a flight and have a fake Negroni. Or if you want just a, you know, a beverage that is like a celebratory beverage, like there's a company called Toast that does, you know, it's it kind of celebrates the moments and occasions and times that are celebratory. And that's not necessarily like an alternative to wine, but it's a great option in those occasions where you want something to celebrate and you want something in your hand. And so I think there is no downside to this from a consumer perspective. And the more brands that are out there and the more money and the more investment in the space, the more... Like I guess the less stigma there will be around it and the more options there will be for people, which I think is a, is a great thing for all.
1: We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider head to com slash download to learn more. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's just a growing awareness of, you know, the health implications. Canada just released their new guidelines saying that like drinking was just bad for you, period. And they weren't going to have a suggested weekly allowance, right? And there's a lot of talk that the US may do something similar. And I think to your point, it's not as if this industry is going away, but people are just being more mindful of, you know, why they're doing it, how they're doing it when they're doing it, et cetera. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's an interesting time to be a consumer there. Can, I'd like to kind of transition into the cannabis world as well, which I know you have some involvement and in. you referenced some of these cannabis cocktails. I, there's probably some kind of clever nomenclature that people throw in those things, but what are you seeing in that space? And especially considering that there, it's still this federal legalization issue floating around there, how are brands attacking it and and how are consumers kind of thinking about it from your perspective?
0: Yeah. So I, just for context, so I spent about three years working for one of the largest privately owned cannabis companies in the U S and headquartered out of Atlanta. At the time I was working for chairman and CEO, Bo Wrigley of like the Wrigley gum family. I had been involved in, in a Pretty notable SPAC deal that ended up not going through, but was involved, you know, in the development of new products within this space. Applied for new licenses in new states. We did a lot of R and D and innovation. So I don't know if that's helpful, but I just wanted to give more context around my role there. And then I currently support a co-founder of, of a company called Wild, which is one of the largest like edibles companies here in the U.S. That is based out of the Pacific Midwest. I still think the issue with cannabis here in the States, I don't work as much day-to-day in it. I am a personal fan of Can, the cannabis beverage company, which is what I was alluding to. Love what Luke Anderson and his team have built. They've built a brand. But anyway, going back to the point, I think the biggest hurdle is at the end of the day is like just educating people on cannabis here. I don't think that quite frankly, most industries do a great job with education. I think people just jump right into their brand or their store. they what I call their so what. With an industry like cannabis, I mean, here in the US, like you just don't have brand loyalists. Like you have to have a dispensary of record. You have to have like a, if you want it in, if you want to get cannabis in states where it's not recreational, you need a license. So you need to have a dispensary. And usually you have like a product format of record. So you may like, smoking a joint or a pre-roll, or you may like having an edible, stuff like that. I, I, I There are a z- z- n- very negligible amount of people here in the U.S. that say, I specifically want this X brand. That's just because at the end of the day, right now, we're in a moment in time with cannabis is kind of comparable to generally like the wine industry where more often than not, they're looking for in wine, I want a red wine under 15 bucks it's not as common they're like i want this specific one from portland or willamette valley in oregon it's like just not, it's just not where consumers are and i think a lot of it is just no brand in my opinion on the cannabis side has really come out and led with education i think can on the cannabis beverage side has done a great job at creating an inclusive brand that has an identity that has a following that also educates people on how to drink a cannabis beverage and where it fits into people's lives and occasions. Whereas like the general cannabis industry, I just don't think there is a brand, at least here in the U S that has done that. And so I think, you know, where I see a white space is if there could be, you know, a brand out there that really just like creates a, a broader lifestyle for themselves and also helps educate people on how much to smoke and what to smoke and where to smoke. It's like, No one's really doing that. And from a regulatory perspective, we still have a lot of work to do. And so I think people are still hesitant about it, which, again, goes back to the point of the need to educate people on on the wider category, which I think then lends itself to people being a little bit more open to the idea of it becoming more of a formalized kind of part of society, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, 100%. Kind of similar to my comment earlier about the younger people I work with not being you know not having issues with sobriety in terms of alcohol. I think you know anecdotally marijuana use is like at least in my peer group and and the socioeconomic crew that I roll around with, pretty accepted and, and widely yeah. practiced, much more so than than alcohol, frankly, I think but to to your point, the way I look at the landscape is ultimately, you know the the product itself will be driven by branding and lifestyle because I don't think there'll be huge differentiation in terms of like the actual marijuana product. And so far, nobody has really been able to take over that market. I think because the federal legalization issue, but eventually there'll be like the in-bev of marijuana, in my opinion, and it'll just, it'll be a marketing tool and they'll just kind of turn the spigot on And they'll have like the whole playbook already spun up and nobody will be able to compete with them because they won't care as much about the the margins. So,
0: right, right. I I fully agree. And again, like, I think, you know, it's funny because you have all these kind of younger people that are like, oh, I'm not drinking stuff, you know, like no one's sitting around just like drinking, you know, lemon with water every night. I mean, let's call (laughs) it. let's call a spade a spade, you know? And I feel like there's a lot happening in the mushroom space. People are, you know, there's a lot going on, obviously in the ketamine industry, there's a lot going on and that's cool. And that's great. And again, it's going back to just giving consumers more options. But I think with that, and I even see this, not to go back to the water stuff, but like, you know, I work for an adaptogenic water company and I I do think uh, it's important for these companies. I, I say to them often too, it's like, educate people. What the hell is adaptogenic water? I don't even know. I eat fruity pebbles for breakfast. Like I'm not the target demo. I like their product because it's a women-owned business. They come from Miller Coors. The company's called Heywell. It's a great brand and they've done a really great job at educating people on what they're doing. Right. But then the wider point of just like that category of like adaptogenic drinks, which is becoming more and more popular. It's like, what is that? I think a lot of times this has nothing to do with Haywell, which is the brand I was talking about, like at a, at a macro level, I think a lot of these discussions are happening in these little ecosystems, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's in your communities, I think a lot of these companies do need to take a step back, whether we're talking about a cannabis company or a water brand or a, the fake beer or a regular beer. And what I try to do with a lot of these people is I have this exercise that I call the so what exercise which is, what is your so what for different audiences? Seriously, like you are, let me give a quick example. You are a new version of Campari. You are, you know, you're basically, you create a new, you know, Campari style aperitivo, right? And that's a kind of like an agroni Campari drink, right? It's a bitter cocktail. And so your so what for a consumer is wildly different then you're so what for a bartender. And then the bartender has very different needs than an investor has. And all of these brands are trying to target everyone from the head of Walmart to a big investment firm to a 25-year-old millennial in Calabasas. So I think it's really important outside of education of the category of where you fit in the category, but really finding your so what as as a very individualized brand. Because without figuring out what your so what is for every audience, like I feel like you are really doing yourself a disservice. So anyway, I go down a rabbit hole, but you get the point.
1: No, I, I completely agree. That makes a lot of sense. And you, you did reference the venture community. I'd love for you to expound kind of your experience within VC and how it relates to beverage and or cannabis in today's market.
0: Yeah. So my business, I had been working up until like 2019, I guess, for all the big conglomerates I mentioned earlier Campari, Boston Beer, Patron, and then got into cannabis, as we talked about. And then when I was in cannabis, I got approached by a beverage focused venture capital firm called Goat Rodeo, based out of Napa. And they were two guys who came from Gallo Wine. They worked for EJ Gallo doing innovation. And they found me through a referral and they just said, look, like, we know you have a full-time job in cannabis. I was vice president of that cannabis company. As I said, my mom, unfortunately, was sick at the time and my husband had to move back to Europe. So a lot going on. And, you know, they were like, look, we put all this money into these, you know, founders within beverage alcohol from e-commerce platforms to female wine brands to cocktail kit companies. And we think you'd be like really helpful. To them in their business. And so I had two full-time jobs for almost like two years. I worked at nights and on the weekends and in the mornings, helping advise these CEOs of beverage companies. It was crazy. And that was the start of my business was, you know, about three and a half years ago was helping navigate the waters of beverage alcohol with these founders. And I started with five and now I personally advise 45 CEOs myself all over the world through my business that I was able to develop in tandem you know again at nights and on the weekends while working in cannabis and so my my foray into M&A was even prior to that when I was working for Pernod Ricard we did you know seven or eight deals in like two years where we brought in west virginia based whiskey brands and mezcal companies from you know mexico and so i had already got a kind of a flavor of how these small brands were assimilated into big corporate America, if that makes sense, right? And then when the venture capital firm kind of jump-started my business, which I've taken from there, all of my business has been through pretty much venture. I mean, I I advise 45 CEOs. I would say 40 of them, if not more, all come from family offices and high net worth individuals and angel investors and venture capital firms that I've developed really strong relationships with. Because if you think about it, I serve as a strategic conduit. Either I'm I'm, I'm formally in venture capital firms where I serve as a board member, board advisor, advisor to these firms that are investing in women-owned businesses. And half of the the CEOs that I advise are underrepresented founders. So they may be focused on investments in people of color or CPG brands or sustainable products or beverage companies or better for you companies. And so I sit in-house for you know five venture capital firms that invest or five venture capital firms that invest in these things. I run deal flow for syndicates, angel groups that invest in this space. And so I also advise these founders around how to navigate fundraising. It sucks. It sucks. There is nothing I, I cannot sugarcoat it. It is a horrible time to be looking for capital. But again, I I at least feel like I Act as a strategic plus up in the context, if that makes sense, and help them connect them with people in the space and help them just try to figure it out, I guess, along the way.
1: Yeah. For reference, we're recording this in February of 2023. And yeah, ventures just can horribly beat up valuations. are getting crushed and there's no liquidity in the market. Very challenging time to be a sponsor or an entrepreneur in the market right now. Good time to be a VC investor. As we kind of wind this down, what are you kind of most excited within the spirits consumer space and what are some things that you're seeing come to market or some trends that you just don't believe in that you think are kind of flash in the pan type of things?
0: I have to say, I think winding down, I I work for a handful of celebrity founded, celebrity backed brands. I don't believe that that Part of the category, which is obviously a trend, is going to go away. I just think that people, I I, I'm gonna call it like celebrity partnerships or influencer partnerships, like 3.0. You know, like I thought 1.0 was, you know, the cosmigos of the world partnerships where, you know, you have George Clooney, who did a fantastic job at aligning with the brand, but not being the face of the brand. And everything was not associated with George Clooney, thank God. To this is 2.0, which there is another huge saturation of brands that. Every single person has a fragrance or an alcohol brand. And now more brands have more celebrities, I think, have beverage alcohol than partnerships than they do fragrances, right? And clothing endorsements. So I don't see it going away. I think it makes sense for uh, so many reasons to have people of influence and clout, like celebrities, like athletes, like influencers, like tastemakers, develop brands, be associated with brands. What I think is going to happen is there is going to be a shift this year in strategy with these types of people. I don't believe it is the most strategic use of the brand or the celebrity's time to do a huge media blitz and a big social media blitz right out the gate. I think you could leverage these people in unexpected ways, albeit whether it's like they have a charity of choice. I saw recently a celebrity a whiskey company and versus just a press release around him partnering with, you know, this company it's about the, his involvement with the charity and how much money this brand will be donating per bottle moving forward to the celebrity's charity. Like just using that as an example or really leveraging these people to sell into a Kroger or a Walmart. So I think one trend that I see, you know, weaning off is just slapping a name next to a brand with a celebrity I really think people are going to be more intentional around it. And I think, I haven't really talked about it a lot. I think there is going to be this uptick in all things premiumization. I have a lot of conversations with executives within all of the big beverage conglomerates and everything is moving towards premiumization. Everything. Anything under a $40, $50 price point is not of interest to the big guys and gals. So I don't think that, I think there will always be, you know, the Bud Lights of the world and, you know, the two buck chucks from Trader Joe's and even the, love these, the Arizona iced teas, which will never hopefully go up in price. But at a a macro level, the word on the street is this shift towards, you know, the premiumization, no matter what's happening in the economy, people want to level up and give themselves something that's going to make them feel better. And so I see this being especially for brands that are already in market and portfolio companies, much more of a focus on the premium the premium products within their portfolios. And then I'm going to see a lot of companies coming to market that are just going to be higher price point because they see this as being something where they can capitalize on it and people always who have money will continue to spend money and it's a good market to be focusing on.
1: So I've got to ask if you're at home or out and you're having a drink, just like, let's call it one, right? End of a long week, you want to be thoughtful and mindful of what you're taking in and you want a good experience. What's your order?
0: I'm a smoky scotch and smoky mezcal. Neat. Mm-hmm. Okay. So twofold. Mezcal. I love mezcal. Yeah, it's good. <gasps> yeah, it's really good. Oh, it's mezcal? So I like mezcal. So I don't, I'm not fancy. I could do like, I love Vita, which is under Del Miguel, which is a, you know, $18, nothing crazy, but it's like, whatever. so it's a, I want a mezcal, salted rim, splash of club soda, and a lime, or I love smoky, smoky scotch. So I love LeFroig, hard bag, neat with a ice cube on the side. What about yourself? That's, that makes me happy. <laughs> Just thinking about it. And what did you do to me? It's a Monday morning at 10. This is not I, good. I know, what but about
1: this, is, this is evergreen content, Taylor. So I know, we have to get I know, I know. people want to know. Yeah. You know, during COVID, my sister-in-law, she's much younger. She she has some um, autoimmune issues and she kind of bunkered down with us during lockdown. Her husband is a doctor, so he was kind of on COVID protocol. So she couldn't be around him. And, you know, she went down this like health and wellness journey and found that tequila was for her anti-inflammatory or less inflammatory. And so I got really into tequila and mezcal. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the mezcal train for sure. And always looking for new brands and, and cool kind of small batch stuff. So that's, I'm currently doing like a 75 hard. So like I'm not drinking, but I, I do really enjoy tequila. So
0: what's 75 hard?
1: It's like an obnoxious thing that people do where I take 75 days. It's like dry January, but it's 75 days. You don't drink, you work out like twice a day and all this stuff. So what? It's, a, it's like a health, health and wellness reset that I'm in. I'm in, I'm on day 43, 44. I'm like halfway through it. So
0: I'll check in with you when you're done. You'll be like, I have never been, never been more fit, but gosh, I'm tired and hungry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Spring break is kind of when it winds down. So I'll be, I'll enjoy that. So one last question we do ask people to come on the show before we let you go. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life?
0: Oh yeah. I manifest everything, Hmm. everything. I I've learned over the years that the more specific you are, and maybe it's all baloney. I don't know, but I have multiple, you hit an interesting spot. So I have in my bathroom, a post-it note. That's like, you are worthy. You are beautiful. You are loved. I don't look at it every day, but when I open the cabinet and I see it, I'm like, wow, that's a nice reminder to have. So I put a post-it note in my bathroom of just reassurance of that I'm loved and that I'm I'm enough and all that stuff. And then on a day-to-day, the manifesting, I've always, I've been doing this for like a decade, right? But then my manifestations are always kind of very lofty, pie in the sky. Like, I don't have kids and live in San Francisco on a hill. And like, okay, that's great. I was like 26, you know what I mean? Like it just, at that point in my life, it was very far away from reality. So I've read more self-help books than I could possibly want to Unveil here on this podcast. Everything that I read is about helping change who I am into something better. I'm always trying to constantly improve, but I've learned about the manifesting that the more specific you get, the better. And I I do truthfully believe this is like literally changed my life in some ways. Not not on a you know not overnight. Nothing is overnight. Like your whole crazy thing you're doing too. Like it's not a, you do this one day and it's done. It's a longer process, but. I write every morning, like found you know founders that I've recently connected with that like I want to work with. And I write it down every single day. And that's not every person that I talk to, but the ones that I'm like, wow, I jived. That would be a great piece of business. I write that down. I write down where I, I want to live, like literally like the street in Tribeca that my husband and I want to move to, how much savings I want to have. I'm so specific and by when. And- it's just, if you look back on where I was when I started this business, where I am now and what those, those goals were, like, I keep upping them. You know what I mean? Like, because I keep hitting what I'm manifesting. And for me, it's something very simple, but I think it just, I don't know what, you know, the jujus are, but I think it really does at least make you super intentional with your life by being very clear, if that makes sense. And that resonates on like what you want and what you don't want, so-
1: I love it. I love it. Well, Taylor, I want to thank you so much for joining us. All the listeners, please do leave a review. Let us know what part of the conversation you found the most insightful. And and Taylor, folks are interested in connecting with you across the various spectrum of things that you're up to on the venture side, consulting, industry resource. What's the best way for them to get in touch?
0: Well, first, thank you for having me. This was really nice. I really, really appreciated the opportunity. So thanks again they could just email me at taylor at the dot org. that's it
1: okay and we connected on linkedin so i assume you're active there as well
0: i am that is cool. my primary day-to-day do not look on my instagram it's just photos of my husband and my dog i lose <sighs> followers every day it's very boring at this point so Understood. yeah you can find me on linkedin at taylor foxman or you could email me at taylor Foxman, taylor at the industry collective.org and i would love to chat with anyone that has any questions or just wants to talk or needs me to connect them with anyone in my network, I'm always happy to do whatever I can there.
1: Awesome. Taylor, thanks so much. Take care. And I look forward to staying in touch.
0: Likewise. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode.